0: The big lie is a propaganda technique that is almost certainly very ancient, but which was formally named by Adolf Hitler in his book, Mein Kampf. And this technique prescribes the use of a lie so colossal, so over the top, that it seems that surely no one could, quote, have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously, end quote. As a result, the big lies are counterintuitively more believable than the smaller lies, because it's almost certain that those being lied to would not believe that anyone would dare make up such a massive mistruth and think that they could possibly get away with it. Now, Hitler described the term big lie in an attempt to label Jews as liars, as people who had stacked the civilizational deck in their favor. He was decrying the use of the big lie technique as flawed by its very nature Because lies that big will always leave behind evidence and can easily be proved incorrect by factual examination. Hitler was essentially saying that Jews were guilty of this and that they had left behind evidence of their falsehoods that he had identified. Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi minister of propaganda, on the other hand, used the term to describe the British. And his version of the big lie implies not just a huge over the top mistruth. And one that could eventually be proven incorrect, but a lie that is told and told and told again, and told with the intention of maintaining a stubborn adherence to that lie, regardless of what facts might come out later. Which is to say that even if someone calls you on your bluff and shows empirical data which proves that you are wrong, that you are lying, still you stick to your guns. You say that they are the ones lying. You call their facts fictions. And failing that, you decry the entire empirical process of determining fact from fiction itself a fiction. This big lie concept was the main storyline, driven by Nazi propaganda, to convince the public that the Jewish community needed to be eliminated. They said that the Jews had started the process of eliminating the German people by taking over all regional politics and economics and culture, and as a result, the Germans needed to exterminate these all-powerful liars if they wanted to survive. It's notable that the term big lie today is more often associated with Hitler and his ilk. That is, they are the ones telling the big lies, their depictions of the truth being so horrifically skewed. I think it's likely that Hitler and other authoritarian leaders like him throughout the ages would consider their own mistruths to be what are often referred to as noble lies, a term that is applied to intentionally propagated myths and mistruths that are told and repeated because they supposedly help a society flourish. Sometimes this means that politicians will pretend to adhere to a certain faith to maintain unity. And sometimes this means allowing the public to believe that they are the victims rather than the victimizers during a conflict, so that they can feel good about their actions during a war rather than guilty about all the death and devastation that they caused by lashing out against a perceived enemy. Like many other demagogues, however, a demagogue being a political leader who seeks support by appealing to popular desires and prejudices rather than by using rational arguments, Like many other demagogues throughout history, Hitler was guilty of the very crime of which he accused other people. His big lies about other people's big lies are a lot more clear now through the lens of history. But in the moment, back in the early and mid-20th century, especially to the people exposed to these big lies all day every day and those who were receiving imperfect information, And prone to inherent local bias, the truth of the matter was anything but clear. Anyone could have been the big liar. Now, even after certain background manipulations and abuses come to light, some people are still capable of continuing to believe the big lie that they were taught earlier on, even after much of the rest of the world has emerged from under its sway. But most people, when exposed to sufficient external data, And when shown that those around them have also begun to question that official story that they had been told, will accept another reality, even when it paints them as part of something horrible that has occurred. But part of why the big lie has worked historically and continues to work today is that we are easy targets for mistruths that use systems of conventional truth dissemination as their carrier. Textbooks and newspapers, for instance, containing lies, catch us at moments in which we are primed to learn facts. And part of why our belief in lies perpetuates, even after that initial exposure and after we've been introduced to some counter-information, is that we're prone to groupthink and herd mentality. So if a large enough group of people begin to believe something, or at least outwardly support a mistruth, that fiction becomes incredibly difficult to deflate. After all, we rationalize, how could so many people be wrong? What I want to talk about today is our role as consumers of news and information, and what seems to be keeping us, even in an age of vast and powerful communication tools, from being better at distinguishing facts from fiction. (laughs) You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show. And what that means is if you are finding value in it, consider stopping by letsknowthings.com and clicking on the Contribute page. From there, you'll find an array of different options of ways that you can help propagate and perpetuate this program. You can leave a review on iTunes, you can share it with a friend or your social network, you can send some money my way, or you can purchase one of my books. Any and all methods of contribution are very much appreciated. Thank you so much to everybody who has already done so. If you are considering doing so, I appreciate the consideration. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. The first sponsor today is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you will receive a free month of Audible, plus a free audiobook of your choice from their vast collection of amazing audiobooks. And this episode is also brought to you by Hostgator, my hosting company for many years now. If you go to hostgator.com slash LKT, you will receive a special discount that they give to listeners of Let's Know Things. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to start from today comes from a somewhat unlikely source. It comes from GQ.com. And it is entitled, We Are Running Out of Ways to Say That President Trump is a Dangerous Delusional Lunatic. And you can see immediately why this is probably not my usual reading material. I am not a fan of now President Trump for many reasons, but I'm also not a huge fan of incredibly slanted journalism. And this piece is incredibly biased in that it makes full use of an elaborate combination of pull quotes and italics and casual frustration language to speak quite clearly about something that a lot of other news outlets are only dancing around. So it is a real article that does contain real facts and links to other less slanted articles, but it's absolutely not a pure Unswayed commentary, but it is useful commentary in that it shines a light on how the conversation about the new US president is going and how that conversation is perceived by some and how much trouble the press is having reporting on the things that he does and says. In last week's episode of the show, I spoke a great deal about how the press is adjusting and how it is warping to a certain degree and the difficulties that it faces due to many different issues, and a little about what we as consumers of the media will need to keep in mind as a result of all of these sudden changes. This week, I'd like to tackle that latter point a little more thoroughly. The reason that this GQ article jumped out at me in the first place, because they are not a news source that I usually put too much stock in, but it did seem suitable as a jumping-off point for this particular topic, was that its tone was very representative of what I hear in the voices, written and otherwise, of a lot of people today. That is utter frustration and confusion, and to a very large degree, a certain type of intellectual exhaustion this piece is not written to be a straight reporting of facts. It was written to be more the opening of a pressure valve, I think. And anytime I come across something like this, I marvel that we have reached a point where it's necessary to engage in this type of conversation in published form. But I also kind of get it right now. I myself am a super intentional consumer of news, and I go through and catch up on what's been happening every day. And lately, after doing my daily reading, I have just been wiped out. Something has changed. There's a condition called compassion fatigue, which is common in nurses and therapists, in cops and first responders. And anyone else who regularly deals with trauma and sadness and pain and angst and violence, even if the people directly experiencing these symptoms are other people who you are merely treating or talking to, or even just exposed to in some indirect manner. Just as a nurse who deals with blood and bile and vomit and Pus and other similar fluids can't help but become inoculated in different ways to the revulsion that the rest of us might feel. Those who deal with psychological gore likewise build up a kind of callous to it. And this callous doesn't mean that they are no longer compassionate, but rather that their body, their brain, is protecting them from suffering all the time alongside these other people all day long. People who experience compassion fatigue are often left feeling tired and depressed and report an increase in nightmares and a decrease in overall happiness. Even things that made them happy before seem to make them less happy. These are side effects of the body absorbing these mental blows subconsciously so that we don't need to deal with them on a conscious level, which allows all those nurses and cops and therapists to do their job, and to get through what could otherwise be an incredibly difficult time. Another name for compassion fatigue is STS, which is an acronym for secondary trauma syndrome, which is pretty fitting, I think, as this is kind of like the secondhand smoke of the psychological trauma world. Most of us experience some degree of empathy toward others, which is part of what allows us to operate well as couples, as families, as communities, as societies. We ratify laws and we punish criminals because we are able to empathize with those who will be protected by those laws. And we can feel a desire for vengeance on behalf of those who are victimized by criminals. There are three or more, depending on who you ask, but three main types of empathy that are usually discussed as the primary types, as opposed to all the subgenres of empathy that are out there. The first is somatic empathy, and this is related to our mirror neurons, which are neurons in our brain which cause us to feel or experience a physical reaction when we see something. Happening to or done by others. The second is affective empathy, which is also called emotional empathy. And this is what allows us to feel emotional states that others feel, or rather the emotional states that we assume they feel, they being who they are, and allows us to experience what we believe they are experiencing from that perspective. And the third is cognitive empathy. And this is the ability to understand another person's mental state. The perspective from which they view the world, and then to intellectually grok how they probably see things based on all the variables that make them who they are, the ones that we are aware of, at least. Those latter two types of empathy, emotional and cognitive, are thought to influence things like altruism, though recent studies seem to show that it's the intellectual, the cognitive understanding of someone's perspective that is more linked with giving, while the emotional feeling what they feel, empathy, somewhat counterintuitively is more likely to result in emotional distress and a resultant pushback against those emotions, which can in turn, very strangely, lead to things like victim blaming, because we want someone to blame for the things that we feel as a result of learning about their experiences, and our subconscious causes us to lash out against the actual victims with whom we are empathizing, who seem, from our subconscious's snap judgment, to be the source of our discomfort. Now that said, this is all still a very young field of research, as the ability to strongly associate these concepts, and even being sure that we understand them well enough to link them To real world actions and observations, it's still very limited. But what does seem to be clear, or at least relatively clear, is that one, we are all at different places on a spectrum when it comes to our ability to empathize in different ways. And that might be many different spectrums, maybe one for each type of empathy. And we are on different places on all these different spectrums for each. And two, that there is a cost to this empathy. As I mentioned, empathy allows us to better relate to each other, to form relationships, and to understand how others might feel and think, which are definite societal advantages. But it costs us energy to empathize, much in the same way that willpower is thought to drain us of glucose, which is the form of energy that fuels our brain. And also like willpower, research suggests that we can get better at empathizing by working out our relevant mind muscles so that we're able to better get into the proper mental state for it and so that we can more healthily cope with the repercussions and absorb them safely rather than being totally torn down by them. Now remarkably, just like with germs and information, our ability to spread psychological conditions has seemingly increased radically alongside our constantly improving communication channels. Just as we empathize with each other when we are working in trauma centers or helping a friend through a bad breakup, we suffer the consequences of compassion fatigue even when exposed to distressing or frightening news coverage. Studies have shown that repeated exposure to news filled with conflict, heart-wrenching stories, and violence can cause the viewing and reading audience to experience a type of PTSD, of post-traumatic stress disorder. I will link to a resource from the United States Department of Veterans Affairs website in the show notes, where they have published a report by the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma on this topic. And as noted in that particular study, people who spent more time with news reports about violence and terrorism in particular were far more likely to report symptoms of PTSD than those who did not. These are not soldiers that are reporting these symptoms, by the way. These are adults and children back home that are simply reading about it and hearing about it and seeing images of it. And yet it seems that as a consequence of the empathic capabilities they have that can be so valuable, they experience many of the same symptoms these soldiers experience, though typically to a lesser degree. What this means for an interconnected global species like us cannot be overstated. We still have to connect about half the population to the internet, but many billions of people are already plugged in and tuned in, keeping pace with news cycles that are often. Ultra focused on violence and mayhem and emotional drama of all kinds because that is what sells advertisements and attracts clicks. The news networks and journalists who present this type of stuff are not trying to hurt anyone. In fact, many of them are trying very hard to ensure we don't get hurt by informing us about these threats that are indeed quite real. But this effort is compounded and changed to a certain degree by the journalism industry's desire to attract audiences. And by the way that we, the audience, choose to follow the news today. That is, we don't simply acquire facts, but instead become emotionally involved in everything from foreign wars to political commentary. As a result, we may, in fact, be doing ourselves more harm than good when we soak up certain types of news over a certain period of time, and in a certain way. But the trouble is, we are in fact drawn to the emotional and the violent. It's an evolutionary thing. There is something in us that cannot help but stare at a car accident, and watch day after day as the same tired, predictable dramas Play out on our soap operas and primetime cop shows. These things titillate us and make us feel something, and they trigger the release of endorphins, which are essentially opiates that our body produces to make us feel good, usually as a reward of some kind. Activities of this sort, which trigger the release of endorphins, are strongly habit forming, which is worth mentioning as a different thing from addictive, which is more of a chemical dependency. Habit forming, on the other hand, is our brain and body saying, okay, let's do that thing more often because that felt good. It then helps us subconsciously come up with excuses to do such things more, and subconsciously helps us create habits around it. Habitual runners who come to enjoy the flood of endorphins that they receive after each workout Will often experience withdrawal symptoms including up to migraine headaches if they break their habit and do not go for a run when they typically do their bodies have become accustomed to the pulse of endorphins on a regular basis i will link in the show notes to a piece that references some studies that were done on this subject in south africa and in germany in the 70s for which families were asked to stop watching television for a month, and for a year, respectively. In South Africa, the poorest of the families in particular were unable to stop and resumed watching after one week, and it's thought that this might be because TV was the source of a great deal of the pleasure that they experienced on a normal basis. In Germany, none of the families of any income level could make it longer than six months without television. In all cases, the test subjects reported feeling sleepy more anxious than usual, and generally depressed, as if, quote, they'd lost a friend, end quote, and they couldn't cope with that loss. Entertainment of this kind fills us with the same type of endorphins that a long-distance runner might feel after a good workout. As a result, it is very often habit-forming, if, again, not truly addictive. And we can experience the same withdrawal symptoms as we might experience from any other comedown when we step away from this type of thing, from this type of entertainment. So as the news becomes more like entertainment, as we near compulsively check our Twitter feeds and the CNN homepage and listen to talk radio and discuss current events with friends because it's entertaining, not because it's purely intellectually stimulating and educational, we fall prey to this potentiality, that our brains will reward us for this act, for indulging in this drama, and as such, we will get hooked on that regular surge of endorphins. And typically, I would say that getting hooked on the news is far better than other types of habits, but as the networks and other entities involved become more focused on getting those ratings and getting more viewers and clicks they are also struggling to ensure that their content attracts emotional investment and is entertaining to their audience, which in today's world, unfortunately, quite often means more conflict, more violence, more angst, which leads to sluggishness, anxiety, and depression in their viewers. And this is a really uncomfortable situation. We want news and we want information in general to be accessible. We want it to be perhaps not habit-forming, in the sense that there's some kind of brain chemical that's hooking us on it, but habit-forming in the sense that we want to learn, and that we want to be informed, and that we want to expand our minds, and we want to ensure that we have the data required to make good judgments, both personal and moral, and ethical and societal. But what this loop seems to suggest is that we are wired to suffer either way, Whether we find such information appealing and entertaining and get hooked on it and then pull away, which results in an endorphin withdrawal, or if we stick with it and are exposed to the harsher sides of reality on the regular and experience a steady stream of compassion fatigue. Now, alongside the empathic issues that we seem to have with news as it exists today, There are also certain issues that emerge anytime we have an overabundance of anything and which are particularly troublesome when it comes to the dissemination of vital facts. Smart companies and politicians and celebrities and the PR firms who help them spin the news cycles know that you drop bad news on days in which there's already a lot going on. You wait until someone else has messed up and some new scandal is all that's being talked about, and then chances are your news when you release it will be buried, and though some people will be aware of it, their outrage will already be aimed elsewhere, or their emotional reserves will be too drained to make much noise about it. They'll be too emotionally exhausted to care. This is something that Trump's team has done to great effect before and after the election. Anytime truly bad news has been about to land, he would say something vulgar or horrible or confrontational on Twitter or leak something equally horrible-sounding, but not as intrinsically deadly to his campaign as the stuff that he wants to conceal. As a result, people were talking about his offensive remark of the day while, in the background, his awkward business relationships and potential legal issues were being quietly swept under the rug. The gossip-worthy and easy to understand overshadowed the bigger, more foundational, more complex issues almost every time. The people who are most adept at manipulating the media know that we, the audience, only have so many fucks to give. And as a consequence, they can only burden us with so many stories, with so many breaking news headlines, before we're likely to tune out and to mentally and emotionally shut down. So how do we deal with this? The world of design, I think, offers an interesting solution. When you look at hierarchy on a page, there are certain rules that you want to keep in mind and certain things that help you organize information in a way that makes it apparent what's least and most important. Good designers know how to make use of size and color, position on the page, and any number of other contrast-building elements that point out to the viewer, whoever happens to be looking at the work, what is the prime thing that they should be looking at, and then what's the next thing, and what's the next, and what's the next. I'm going to guess that we'll need more and better elements of this kind for the news world in the coming years. Because today, even the information buffs are having trouble sorting out the valuable stuff from all the puffery. I can definitely feel this in my own information consumption habits. It's become more difficult and more time-consuming and more tedious and frankly more tiresome than ever to try to get to the good stuff because of all the bad that's in the way and the lack of distinguishing factors between the two. I have heard the same from many other people who put a lot of time and effort into ensuring that they graze from a variety of good quality sources. The whole process is just not as intuitive as it should be. And this is connected to the other problems that we've seen in this industry, which I have spoken about at greater length in past episodes. How are non-journalists supposed to know the difference between the real deal and fake news when everything is presented in the same way, and given the same weight by voices that they've come to trust? And how can they even trust their own best judgment When that judgment is shaped by the information that they have access to, and that information is what they need their judgment to properly sort and identify. How do we grow when the tools we have and have become dependent on have also become inadequate? The ice levels in the Arctic are at an all-time record low in the very near future, it is likely that we are going to have a completely open Arctic Ocean that is 100% or nearly 100% ice-free. And that means a new resource rush for the mineral deposits that we have already identified in the area. It means a new socioeconomic situation in the Northern Hemisphere. It means faster travel. means more direct shipping paths but also shorter possible invasion routes between countries that have not been on the friendliest of terms over the last century. Everything could and probably will change as a result of this shift in the Arctic. And yet we seldom hear about this, except from very specific, very niche, very focused sources. The impact of all this ice melting into the ocean will change the shape of the coastlines around the world. And that message that we are about to experience something unprecedented in recent history, is lost in a deluge of politicking and personality scandals. But the thing is, those politics and those scandals are also often quite important. And that's the problem. At any given moment, there are many truly vital things happening around the world, and our ability to pay attention to all of them to sort them out, to keep tabs on multiple world-altering happenings all at once, is even less up to snuff than usual because of the shape of the news ecosystem today and the effects of that ecosystem on our collective psyche. This means, unfortunately, that we are failing to address a lot of fundamental issues. Human rights are very important, but if all humans die... Or if civilization reshapes itself in a negative, military-heavy way due to scarcer resources, for example, if we lose a bunch of real estate on the coasts due to Arctic ice melt, then modern human rights could all but disappear as a consequence of that. So I'm not saying that we should stop demanding more and better human rights. I'm saying that if we fail to address the climate change issue then all the human rights in the world may not protect underprivileged people from that even worse state of affairs. And many more people than before will, as a consequence, become underprivileged. There was a wonderful tweet the other day from a guy named Alex Stephan, who is very worth following if you are keen to keep up with climate-related stuff. And it was a follow-up response to his own earlier tweet, which said, quote, as appalling, stupid, and likely illegal as Trump's anti-Muslim immigration moves are, they're nowhere near the most alarming things happening. End quote. But then, in his follow-up tweet, he said, quote, "You know what? I'm wrong about this. It's all red alert stuff. Who am I to tell others which alert they should respond to first? Sorry End quote. I feel like he captured something." Really meaningful, but also something very heartrending. There, we choose our causes and focus on them, sometimes to the exclusion of most or all other causes, because we simply don't have the bandwidth to worry and care and act upon all the things that would otherwise capture our attention and our energy and our mental well being and spread them out super thin. These issues that we choose are lucky to have us, but it can often seem like other people just don't get it because of our dedication to those single issues. They don't realize how vital, how immensely important this thing that we have chosen is. But if I decide that my thing, for instance, is global climate change, is that not also connected to politics and that we can only make the kinds of changes we need to make if the right governments are in charge of society and controlling all those resources and passing the right laws and regulations, is global climate change not connected to human rights in that massive forced migrations will be necessary as the sea levels rise and clean water around the world becomes salinated, which will in turn require massive expenditures of energy to make it potable, with especially disastrous results in areas that are already suffering today? Is climate change not entwined with geopolitics and warfare, with technology and health? Are animals not affected by climate change? Isn't veganism a cause that many people make the core focus of their lifestyle and self-perception integrally connected with climate change and, in effect, all the other things I just mentioned? That's the thing. These issues, they are all one issue in a way. We come down on different parts of it and on different sides of specific facets of the issue, the issue of trying to better the world, whatever that happens to mean to us as individuals. But even though we're tackling different pieces of the whole, we are all involved in a huge interconnected struggle. It is not all PR spin that is causing us to feel like we are flooded with important stories all the time there are a lot of vitally important things going on at the same time, always. Too many to keep track of, much less worry about. And sometimes these things reside in the same realm of study as a lot of the other things, and sometimes they're all over the map. And the simultaneity and irregularity of their media popularity does not diminish the importance of any individual issue one bit, despite the fact that we may be tempted to believe that that is the case. But it's important to remember that if we all stopped everything and worked on just one thing, any one thing, no matter how big or important it seems, and demanded that everyone else shut up about their thing for a while so we can worry about this one thing, the world would very quickly collapse. And it's much better that we just recognize that all of these things are connected in ways that are invisible and visible, So working hard on our thing that we've decided to dedicate ourselves to, while also recognizing the value of other things, is probably a much better way to approach that, to solving these problems without collapsing the world. I do think that we will come up with ways to evolve our communication channels and associated technologies to better cope with these issues in the near future. I don't think we have much choice on that. I also think that we will hopefully become more aware of the interconnectedness of these issues, and come up with better ways to explain and understand the broader context, which will allow us to look around at other people working on other things, and to be able to see them as friends and comrades, holding down a different front of the same fight, and perhaps even figuring out ways to share the fruits of our respective labors between these issues, allowing my work to help your cause and vice versa. In the meantime, on an individual level, we can make every effort to focus better and to prioritize facts and comprehension rather than salaciousness and entertainment. We can silence some of the most obvious perpetrators of confusion and compassion fatigue by deleting all those greedy and needy apps that ping us all day long and deny their notification permissions on our devices. We can silence all those distractions And allow the news to reach us only when we want to hear it, when we intentionally seek it out, at moments when we are trying to learn things. From there, we can extract ourselves from it just as easily as we can find it. Which is not what these cumbersome networks and other media entities want us to do. But it is likely a whole lot better for our comprehension, and our mental well-being, and ultimately, hopefully, our mutual understanding. Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners. If you go to letsknowthings.com, you will find a contribute page. And on that contribute page, you will find a bunch of different quick links to different ways that you can contribute to the show. You can contribute directly, monetarily, by giving a buck an episode or whatever amount makes sense for you and your situation. You can share the show with a friend, a family member, with your social network of choice. You can leave a review up on iTunes. All of these efforts are very much appreciated. Thank you very much, everyone who has already done so, and thank you in advance if you are thinking of doing so in the future. Another great way to help the show is to check out our sponsors. If you go to hostgator.com slash lkt, you will receive a special discount that is given to listeners of Let's Know Things by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I've used for my own projects for many, many years now. They are a pleasure to deal with. HostGator.com slash LKT is a great way to acquire cheap and reliable hosting services while also helping this podcast. And the other sponsor today is Audible. I am a huge fan of books in general. If you've yet to get into audiobooks yourself, you can check it out on the cheap by getting a free month of Audible membership and a free audiobook of your choice. And that audiobook is yours to keep whether or not you stay with Audible past that free month. It's really easy to cancel if you do not enjoy it. But either way, free audiobook. And there is a huge selection, several hundred thousand different options in their catalog. It is the biggest online library of such things that you will find. And by taking advantage of that free month, Not only do you get that free audiobook, but you also help support Let's Know Things, which is wonderful. Thank you for that. You can receive that free month and that free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash LKT. I typically recommend a book at this point in the show, and typically something that you can get as an audiobook, but this time the book that I'm going to recommend is not, because it's actually a design book. And although I tend to lean pretty heavily on my ebook collection these days and my audiobooks for when I'm cooking or when I'm on the road, when I'm on a road trip or something. Those have become my go-tos. But something that I still like to get the print edition for when I can is design books, because the books themselves tend to be quite beautiful, but also the illustrations are something that doesn't reproduce quite as well, typically in electronic books, and definitely would not reproduce very well in audio form. And the book that I'd like to recommend is called Thoughts on Design by the great Paul Rand. And if you know anything about design, chances are you've heard of Paul Rand. If you have lived in the 20th or 21st century, chances are you have seen his work. He has designed some of the most famous logos of the century. And he is a huge proponent of the Swiss style, which is very clean, very rational. He is a huge proponent of simplicity and form, and communication being key, and the aesthetics being driven by that communication, all things that I very much believe in as well. And this book was originally published back in 1947, but there was a new edition that came out in 2014. And it's just, it's very much worth the read. It's a great guide to understanding the fundamentals of design, the philosophy of design. And then if you are thinking about or researching or even just interested in, in any vague way, the way that we communicate things through visuals, learning a little bit about design is a good way to do that. And Paul Rand is an amazing, legendary voice within that space. And so I know I I talk a whole lot about communication and propaganda and manipulation and advertising, and all of these things kind of track back to design. So this type of book is really worth checking out. As I mentioned, you can get an ebook copy for your Kindle or your Kobo. I would recommend going to your local library or your local indie bookstore or up on Amazon and snagging yourself a print version if you are interested in this. That is Thoughts on Design by Paul Rand. You can find out more about me and my work, including a full list of my books, if you're interested in checking out one of the books that I have written, at colin.io. And you can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the Let's Know Things social media accounts at Let's Know Things. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.